You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Matt Nickerson. I'm the lead pastor here, and um, I am a recovering people pleaser. Can anybody else relate? Any, some of you are like, no. Well, that's because uh, we all take on different personalities, usually because of the dynamics of our home, right? But then we play those out in our lives, and nothing changes us more than when we get married, and then when we have kids, and then when we become adults, we had to figure out how to coexist with other people who weren't in our family unit, and that changes everything. When I was a kid, we played a game, and it was called Honey, If You Love Me, Will You Just Please Smile? Did anybody else ever play this really lame game? Okay, a few of you. I don't know who made this game up, but we're in youth group. Here's how it went. Everybody sat in a circle facing each other, and um, somebody was chosen to be it. And their job was to sit in the, or kind of stand in the circle and to look around the circle and all the other faces staring at them and to pick out their prey. And the goal was to go to somebody. I don't know if you've seen this on YouTube now. Well, they'll have like a table, and somebody will sit on one side, and somebody will sit on the other, and they'll tell a one-liner at each other. And the goal is to tell a one-liner so silly, the other person will laugh. First one to laugh loses. That's kind of the essence of this game. So you pick out the person, and your job was to walk over to them, and you could tell a joke, you could be silly, you could flirt, you could do almost anything you wanted, but the job for them was to not smile. Eventually, you usually had like 30 seconds or so, your job was to look at them and say, honey, if you love me, will you just please smile? And their job was to look back at you with a straight face with no tone or hint of laughter in their voice and say, honey, I love you, but I just can't smile. And then that basically meant you lost, they won, and, and, and then the game moved on from there. So the reason I'm saying this is I was phenomenal at this game. I could get, and you guys know it's because I'm so funny, right? I mean, like, okay, for those of you who are visiting with us today, I am terrible at jokes. My wife, my, not my wife, my mom, <clears throat> we're from Ohio. Um, my mom this week, she said to me when I was on vacation, I took my boys up to visit my parents, sent my wife to Cabo, husbands just sitting in the bar high for you. And uh, I went up to see my mom, and at some point in the week, my mom looks at me and she says, Something, she's teasing me, she says something defective. Yeah, you're so funny, you have to explain your jokes so your church will laugh. Thanks, mom. There's nothing like encouragement to make you feel better. So anyway, the whole point was I was great at this game because I had learned the skill set of making people like me. Except that didn't play over well in conflict situations in my life. Fast forward a couple years from high school, now I'm in Bible college, and there was some conflict. There was a group of us guys who were very, very, very close friends. A lot of us had kind of shared rooms with each other at some point. We kind of hung out. We played football together all the time. It was great. And at one point, there was conflict between me and another guy in the group. And so one of the other guys decided to insert himself and try to bring uh, kind of restoration between me and this other guy. So he asks me to go to coffee with him on behalf of this other guy. And we're sitting across each other. And I knew something was up because I'm like, why is my friend? But here we are, 21-year-old guys trying to figure it out. And we're sitting at coffee across from each other. And finally, it's like time to have the talk. And he's transitioned from like, you know, little things like, hey, how's your classes going? How's your grades? Blah, 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 to like serious. All right, the reason we're here, Matt, is, and the whole time, I couldn't stop smiling. And I wanted to look at him and say, Joe, I love you, but I just keep smiling. And finally, about halfway through the talk, he looked at me and he is livid. He is angry. And he said, why are you smiling at me? This is serious. And I was like, I don't know. I just can't stop smiling. 
And I felt inside, I was so nervous. My stomach was in knots. My heart was, you know, pumping in my chest. Adrenaline was flowing through my veins because I had not yet developed the skill set related to personal one-on-one conflict. And I desperately wanted my friend to look at me and say, hey, we're okay. It's okay. Don't worry about it. We just need to have a talk. But I didn't know where this was going to go. I wasn't convinced I was in the wrong. I was just as convinced my friend was in the wrong. But I didn't have the skill set to work it out with him. And so here's another guy inserting. I thought, is this going to cost me my place in the group? That's what's going on in my head. So what I want to do today is tell you what God has had to teach me over the last 20 years about how to do personal conflict. And I'll tell you this, I'm a recovering, people-pleasing person. So I'm going to do my best to teach you those skills that I have had to learn the hard way, some of those Bible verses that have convicted me. And maybe you will be enlightened and convicted as well. First thing I want you to know before you go any further is this. Conflict, conflict is one of the many tools that God will use to help you develop a more Christ-like character. Some of you are like, nah, he already doesn't know what he's talking about. Trust me, you can't avoid it. You can't run away from it. Sooner or later, you're going to be frustrated, hurt, upset, or offended by what somebody else said or did or what you think somebody else said or did. And that's part of the discerning process. If you're looking for a great book or tool, Ken Sandy's written a number of them. There's Peacemakers. This quote comes from a book called Peacemaking for Families. Peacemaking for Families. I recommend the book if you're looking for more stuff. All right, here's three quick ground rules. We're gonna go through these slowly. Three quick ground rules for confrontation. Number one, and we kind of talked about this two weeks ago when I spoke, but number one, check your own heart. So somebody's sitting in the room right now, you've been fighting with your spouse all week or all weekend, you're fighting over Halloween or whatever the details are. You need to check your own heart first. I'll talk more about what that means in a second. Let's start with this verse. We read it about a month ago, but it still applies today. Ephesians chapter four, Verse 29 says this, don't use foul or abusive language. Let everything you say be good and what? Helpful, so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. We could just stop there for a second. This one verse alone, I may not even need to say another word. I will, because I got time. But, see, I'm kind of funny. Anyway, so you, uh, this one verse alone, will be something that will encourage you or challenge you. When conflict occurs, if you're the kind of person who goes into what we would call an aggressive control state, since you don't like things being out of your control, you're going to do whatever you have to do to bring things back into your control. And in that place, you might use foul or abusive language. You're gonna let everybody know you're in charge, you're in the right, and they're in the wrong. So if that's your confrontation style, I just want to encourage you right now, Take a deep breath. Something's going on in here, and you need to navigate that. So, every word that comes out of your mouth better be good and helpful. It's for the purpose of encouraging others. You may be saying, Well, how can confrontation be encouraging to others? Well, when the Bible talks of confrontation, what the Bible means is that somebody has sinned. They've either sinned against you, so consequently they've really sinned against God, or they've directly sinned against God. They're caught in a sin or a sin pattern, and you may see it, and so you're going to them in order to call them back to a healthy and right relationship with God or with you or with others. That's the goal 
of biblical confrontation. And so what you're gonna do first is navigate your own heart. Do you really have their best interests in mind? He goes on and he says this, verse 30. And do not bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way you live. Remember, he has identified you as his own, guaranteeing that you will be saved on the day of redemption. So we're gonna get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Instead, we will be kind to each other, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God, through Christ, has forgiven you. Just let that sink in for a minute. The goal is to check our own hearts. Okay, here's some ways you can check this. Is my blood pressure up right now? Okay, every parent in the room says yes. When your kids are fighting with each other, they directly disobeyed you. I had a situation even last night that's in my mind as I'm saying this, and my heart rate goes up, my blood pressure goes up, I'm feeling disrespected and irritated, but what I need to do is take a deep breath and realize everything that proceeds from this moment forward is going to shape the condition of my children's heart. Are they going to hear foul, abusive language? Are they gonna see anger and rage and wrath? Or are they going to see in me a calming leader who loves them and cares for them and is only doing what is best for them? Make sense? But the same is true for your spouse. So part of the reason some of you can't get through your marital conflict yet is because one of you is dominating the other person. You're still controlling them, and you feel like, well, good, there's peace in my home. But the peace in your home isn't real. The peace in your home is coming because you've raised up and intimidated everybody else, put them in their place. Consequently, what you have is another person's heart who is terribly wounded and is feeling the effects of the fact that perhaps they're afraid of you or afraid to be in your presence. And this may be a terrible example, but it's a real one. See, the opposite of my people-pleasing is when I go to in control mode. And this is a struggle for me. It's the other part of me I'm confessing today. But yesterday, I was watching a particular Ohio State, Penn State football game. And the first three and a half minutes, I went from excited about the game to sad, depressed, and angry. And the Lord began to say to me, your heart is not in a good place. We're three minutes into the game, and my, the Lord is saying to me, you still have an idol. I thought I'd dethroned this football idol, but apparently I had not. And over the next few quarters, for those of you who don't know, Ohio State was losing the game the entire game. They had no business winning that game. Let's just be honest. The whole game, my attitude is just terrible. And my son, is he's seeing me upset at the TV and he's trying to get my attention because he's feeling insecure about our relationship because I'm mad at a TV and a stupid football game. And at one point, he's working on something on the floor and he looks at me and he says, Daddy, don't you think this is good? And I say, yes, it's great. And I go back to watching the TV. And about 10 seconds pass. And he says, Daddy, did you really like it? And I said, Felt like the spirit said, Matt, you just yelled at him when you're not even mad at him. You didn't even really look. I took a deep breath. Buddy, I think it's great. I said, did I scare you? And he said, yeah, you said it was great, but your words said you're mad at me. Now, praise God, I have taken these principles uh, and applied them to my life that my son felt safe enough in my presence to expose me. I hate that, but he did. Because then the spirit was able to say, your heart is not doing well. 
You're spilling out what's in here. So before I can confront anybody, I've got to navigate. We talked about this two weeks ago, but I've got to navigate what's in here. I've got to know, do I have this person's best interests in mind? Am I speaking the truth, not just from my perspective, but am I speaking a real truth? Is there real concrete evidence? I am allowed to speak the truth from my perspective, but I need to couch it in a way that isn't accusatory. And so what I need to do is ask myself, like, do I really love them? Am I really being kind to them? Are my words going to encourage them? Am I really calling them back into a right relationship with me or God? Or do I really just want to be right? Because how many times do we get into a fight or a confrontation and our main goal is to win? Which will lead well into rule number two, ground rules for confrontation number two. I want you to win the relationship, not the fight. Win the relationship, not the fight. Okay, for some of you in this room who perfectionism, OCD is a little bit of an issue for you, this is going to be hard because you're going to care more about the details than the person. Remember this, people trump tasks, okay? People trump tasks. Relationships are more important than who was right or wrong. Right or wrong is a part of the relationship, but if you're hanging on every single detail, if you want every I dotted and every T crossed, then you're really not fighting for the relationship. You're fighting to be right. Make sense? The Bible talks over and over and over again about a wise person is, will actually overlook a wrong. A wise person will actually overlook a wrong. And why is that important? Because there are certain wrongs that occur in this life that you just go, you know what? They had a bad day. They're tired. They're grumpy. Whatever it is, they just had a surgery. They just had a thing at work. The car tire just went flat. I'm just going to overlook that one because I'm not going to confront every single situation. It's just not worth it. Now, people pleasers are going to use that to the extreme. Look, I'm godly because I'm overlooking every single wrong that's ever occurred. And that's dangerous for you because there is this place of pulling yourself out of aggressive control and this place of pulling yourself out of people pleasers and finding yourself somewhere in this muddy, mucky middle that's not clearly defined and saying, I'm gonna overlook certain things because of the situation, but there's other things I've got to confront. I've got to call them out. And the thing is, you're gonna do it always for the sake of the relationship. Go back and look at verse 32. I already read it to you, but look at it again. Instead, be kind to each other, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has what? Forgiven you. When I'm fighting for the relationship, that means my goal going into the confrontation is to point out not just a mistake, but something you've truly done wrong. And my goal of that is to lead you to a place of confession and saying, I'm sorry. And my goal is to look at you and say, I forgive you. I forgive you. My goal isn't to punish you. My goal isn't to hold it over your head. My goal isn't to win. Yes, you admitted it. Ha ha, I've won up on you. You owe me one now. No, my goal going in is to lead you to this place. The purpose, the purpose of confrontation is reconciliation. Are you with me? 
It's reconciliation. We are the most forgiven people on the face of the planet. We ought to be the most forgiving people on the face of the planet. Let that one sink in for just a minute. For those of you visiting with us, what I mean by that statement is this. See, as Christians, we believe that we have sinned greatly against God. Now, most of us tend to, um, kind of apart from this relationship with God, we tend to couch sin in terms of the really big evil things, you know, uh, a child abuse of some sort or dramatic physical harm or murder, and then we kind of go down from there. And somewhere down here, you know, you might have, uh, you know, drug use or alcohol abuse that hurts somebody else. If it doesn't hurt anybody else and only hurts yourself, then eh. But over here, then you've got, you know, that, you know, lies, and then you've got little white lies, and, you know, you've got like this line in our mind. But see, according to God, even the smallest offense, even the smallest thing that we do that goes against his character, against his nature, is an infinite offense because he is an infinite God. He's existed as far in the past as he does in the future. He's infinite holy, meaning he is only does the right thing all the time. And so that's why the smallest offense offends and hurts the heart of God deeply and profoundly. And so because of God's righteousness, that he wants the right thing done all the time, the other side of that is that God has to punish wrongdoing. He carries out, so to speak, his wrath that's built up from his righteous and holy character being offended. And as that happened and occurred, he decided instead of pouring out on me and on us what we deserved, he would pour it out on his one and only son, whose name is Jesus. So that when Jesus hung on the cross, it wasn't just a leader dying so a cause could move on. It was a leader dying to take the wrath of God so that he could give us mercy and forgiveness instead of what we deserved. So Christian, realize when you go into confrontation with somebody, you're going in with the purpose of drawing them out of where they are that you might show them the mercy that God has shown you. And you know why that's hard? Who lost the most in the cross? Jesus gave up his own life that we might live. If you're going to become like Jesus, that might mean as you approach confrontation or a fight, you lose in the physical world. You might lose money. You might lose time. You might lose possession. There might be a number of things you lose in the process because the end game is not to get physical things back. The end game is to win the person are you with me? And so when Jesus died on the cross, he lost the most, but who also gained the most? Jesus. Because in giving up his own life, he opened the path so that anyone who would receive him could come in. And now he has many, many children that he has won through his sacrifice. In fact, in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus gives us the model for confrontation. He says this in Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. And I want you to note the first few words. If another believer sins against you. So before we get to the end of what he says, 
we're recognizing at the very, very outset that we're talking about a conflict, a confrontation between two believers. And specifically, a sin has occurred. A sin can be a mistake, but this appears to be something that's clearer. It's something that um, somebody has done that has deeply hurt and offended a heart. If another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. If the other person listens and confesses it, you have won that person back. Jesus summarizes conflict and confrontation in one verse. It's simple. If you have been hurt by someone else, go to them. My friend in college, you know where he messed up? He didn't send my other friend back to me. Maybe he tried, my other friend was too timid, maybe he should have been a mediator, but it should have been both of them, in the very least, sitting at lunch with me. But by him inserting himself into the process ahead of everything taking place, it just wasn't going to happen. It wouldn't have been necessarily inappropriate for him to come to me to try to bring us together because sometimes, times, 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 situations require a mediator, a person who can bring two people together. But what Jesus is saying here is if you are hurt, if you are offended, someone has sinned against you, the right process is to go to them, plead your case. Here's how you hurt me. Here's how I was offended. Here's what you did to me. And notice he says, and if they listen. Okay, so if somebody comes to you later after hearing this sermon and says, we need to talk, can we go to coffee? Your job is to do what? Listen. Our goal normally in this situation is, oh, I can't wait till my turn to prove that I'm right. But the job is to listen. And then if you hear from them that you were wrong, confess it. And if they do, celebrate, you won them back. Okay, so here's a question. What does it mean to actually forgive somebody who's hurt you or wronged you or sinned against you? I think Ken Sandy does a great job. He says this, forgiveness may be described as a decision to make four promises, four promises. You ready? Number one, I will not think about this innocent, not innocent, incident. Number two, I will not bring up this incident again or use it against you. Number three, I will not talk to others about this incident. And number four, I will not allow this incident to stand between us or hinder a personal relationship. Now just leave those up there for a second. I want you to think about these. I'm gonna walk through these quickly because this is powerful. In fact, I have literally had couples in my office. I don't do hardly any marital counseling anymore, but I've had couples in my office and they can't get past a conflict. And because even though they both said, I'm sorry, they've not actually done this. So number one, when you're healing and forgiving it, what you're looking at them is saying, you know what? I can't make it go away, but I'm not gonna think about it anymore. So you've often heard, right, that, that to forgive somebody means to forgive and forget. I think that's an absolute wrong thing. I don't think that's taught in the Bible because we're modeling our forgiveness after God's forgiveness. So let me just ask you something. Can God ever forget something? Some of you are like, I don't know. <laughs> God would cease to be God if he didn't know everything, okay? So it's not that God doesn't know your sin. It's that God chooses not to dwell on it or think about it anymore. If your sin is ever brought up again by Satan before him, your accuser, your adversary, he looks at it as covered in the blood of Jesus Christ. And so he can look at him and say, that's done, that's over with, it's in the past. I'm not even gonna think about it anymore, it's irrelevant. It's dealt with. That's how you're to look at the situation. So if the person has confessed, 
You have some healing. You're saying, I'm not going to dwell on it anymore. This is why the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, love does not take um, joy in celebrating past wrongs. There's no win in that. Love doesn't come into a situation after forgiveness and say, and remember 10 years ago when you did this? And the person's confused, like, I thought you forgave me. Sometimes my wife and I have to practice this with each other where we'll say, I'm sorry, and I forgive you. And then later it gets brought up, and the other one will look, she'll look at me, or I'll look at her and say, I'm confused because you told me whatever that was an hour ago, a week ago, a month ago, a year ago, you told me you forgave me, and yet you're bringing it up again. So did you really forgive me? Which really goes to the second one. I will not bring this incident up again, and I will not use it against you. Once you've confessed and you've said you're sorry and I have said I forgive you, I will never, it may come up in my mind because I'm not God, I'm human, but if it comes up in my mind, I'm gonna give it to God at that point. I'm gonna say, God, I have forgiven this. I have washed this in the blood of Jesus Christ. I'm moving on. Here, I will not talk to others about this. The majority of wounds that we uh, create in other people's lives is when somebody hurts us, we don't go to them. Where do we go? Somebody else. I'm gonna call my mom and and get her advice, which is really just a great way to gossip. I know what I'll do. I'm gonna ask the people in my Bible study, my men's group, to pray for me, which is really just a great way to spread it around. Oh, 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 I'm gonna put it on social media. There's a great idea. (laughs) Can I just say real quick, please, Don't post on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, whatever you choose to use, whatever exists 10 years from now that doesn't exist today, please, the world doesn't need to know your personal conflict with others. That's why Jesus says, you go to them, to them. And then lastly, I will not allow this incident to stand between us. I am making a personal choice that how you hurt me, since you've owned it, is no longer going to be a barrier between us. Now, this is not a sermon, and I don't have time in my whatever, 12, 15 minutes left. I don't have time to go deep into this. Look, I am not talking about immediate trust. I'm talking about immediate forgiveness. I can forgive somebody and not yet trust them, and they still have to earn back and prove to me that they're serious, that their actions are actually going to change. That's not the focus of this message. We're talking about a confrontation where you've gone and confronted somebody, and they've owned it before you. He goes on and says, as Ken Sandy does, by making and keeping these promises... You tear down the walls that stand between you and your offender. You promise not to dwell on or brood over the problem, nor to punish by holding the person at a distance. You clear the way for your relationship to develop unhindered by memories of past wrongs. This is exactly what God does for you, and it is what he commands you do for others. It comes from Ken Sandy's book, The Peacemaker. All right. We're almost done. Number three, ground rules for confrontation. When you get stuck, get help. Jesus goes on in Matthew 18 and he says this. But if you are unsuccessful, so you've gone to the person who has sinned against you, you've confronted them, they won't listen, they won't receive it, they won't admit it. He says, take one or two others with you and go back again so that everything you say may be confirmed by two or three witnesses. 
Now, before we move on to the next verse, in the Old Testament, it was commanded that in order for a person to be condemned, there had to be two or three witnesses in order to condemn them. This is part of the reason why we have four gospels that essentially tell the same story and not just one, because it's more. God went above and beyond his own rule for witnesses to the story. So we have four witnesses, eyewitness accounts being told of the life of Jesus. But Jesus is saying, take at least one, so there's two of you. If not two, so there's at least three of you. You could even take more if you need it. But go to that person. Their job now is to be able to listen. In that moment, they're going to be able to mediate. They're going to be able to listen to the other side's person of the story and be able to weigh in and say, now, wait a minute here. Their job is not to go in like a gang on your behalf to beat them up or attack them into submission. They're there to hear out what's being said and what's being shared. Now, think about the power of this for a minute. Imagine somebody comes to you, could be a husband or a wife or a neighbor or an employee or a parent and a child, whatever it is. And they say, I have talked to my whatever, I need help. And you say, let's go to them together. The power of you in that moment is you get to help both sides hear the other side. Your job is to keep peace. Not keep peace by avoiding, keep peace by exposing what has happened and allowing the truth to come out so that apologies can be made. In this situation, obviously, Jesus is describing something that's clearly wrong. It's clearly evil. Now, what would happen for all of you? Why don't you think back over your life now? What would happen in those times when somebody came to you to gossip if you turned your gossip into Matthew 18? What would happen if you had looked at them and said, okay, have you gone and talked to them yet? Well, that's not the point. I, I, I'm not trying to, I'm just, uh, okay. So when are you gonna go talk to them? Well, I, it's not really, I don't need to do that. Really? Then why are we talking about it? And some of you are like, I'm a people pleaser. I can't do that. But see, that's what needs to happen. This person is now offending God by talking about it, not to them. Now imagine that person did go to them and they're talking to you and they say, I've tried to go and talk to them. They won't listen to me. And instead of just saying, hmm, I'm not sure what you should do, you can look at them and say, well, what if we go together? Or if you don't know that other person, you could say, do you know anybody? Is there anybody in your life that can go with you? Let's call them right now. Let's go ahead and get an appointment made and set something up. This is the benefit of paid counselors, and we have many in our church and in our community who are godly men and women. They could come alongside a couple or even people having conflict and say, hey, let's sit down together and try to figure this out. Let's do this. Some of our pastoral staff do this. We do this sometimes with premarital counseling. I try to create conflict so that we can see how people are going to do it. Like, it's great. Like, go home and do this and fight. Come back and tell me about it. Anyway, the goal, though, is to learn how to sit down and talk and hear, to listen and be heard, and then to own where we messed up. Let's just be honest for a minute. The reason most of us don't own where we messed up is because of our own personal shame, our own pride and insecurities about what will happen to us if we admit we are wrong. Let me tell you what will happen to you if you admit you're wrong. If you are wrong and you admit you're wrong, you're gonna find yourselves in the hands of Almighty God. Because Jesus says over and over and over again, I will lift up the humble, but I will bring low the haughty. Admitting you're wrong is a godly thing to do. Not because God ever admitted he was wrong, 
but because he promises to meet you in that moment, to restore you, to forgive you, and to redeem you. You're putting your life in his hands. You could trust him. But let's say you're in a situation, victim, where you have been hurt, you have been wronged, and the person won't acknowledge it. You've taken people with you, and they still won't deal with it. Look at what Jesus says next. Verse 17. If the person still refuses to listen, take your case to the church. Then if he or she won't accept the church's decision, treat that person as a pagan or a corrupt tax collector. You're like, well, that sounds pretty evil. (laughs) Even in our day. Well, stick with me here. Let's talk a little bit about what's going on. Paul teaches us in his writings that as believers, we will one day actually judge angels, which is a mind-boggling thing to kind of take in. But the whole point of what Paul is saying is whatever it is that happens in the next life, we will actually be judges over spiritual beings who are currently involved in our world in ways we don't see but see the effects of. What Paul is trying to get into the believers, I believe it's in the book of Corinthians where he says that, what he's trying to get into them is you have the Holy Spirit inside you. You have the ability to judge and discern right from wrong. You have the ability in you to weigh in on situations. And you won't always know why it's right or wrong. You'll just have a sense of peace about you. But because you have that, use it. So that when people are caught in conflict and they've gone to somebody and they've taken others with them and the person still will not break their pride and admit they're wrong, they can actually be brought before the church. And if they won't listen to the whole church, then you can actually remove them from the church. Now, this is something the Bible calls church discipline. And we don't talk a lot about it. Nobody ever wants to do it or deal with it. If church discipline ever happens at a church our size, we don't bring them before the entire church. We usually deal with it at a very smaller level, at a small group level or some other level. This is usually only used for extreme situations where people are caught in sin and will not repent. I've only really had to do this once in my entire ministry of about 20 years at this point. I hope I never have to do it again. It's no bueno. My wife with the Cabo, sorry. Anyway, the point of this, though, is that it is such a terrible offense that it needs to be owned, it needs to be changed, and the person's not owning it, and they're not changing. But what do you do with them at this point? Well, the way most of us in America read this text is, you know what you do? You give them the ultimate punishment. You kick them out, you treat them like a pagan and a corrupt tax collector. Okay, let me ask you a quick question. What do we do with pagans and corrupt tax collectors? We preach the gospel to them. Are you with me? Go read Luke chapter 15 sometime, which I taught on earlier this summer as we went through Ephesians. What, what are the Pharisees angry about? They're angry that Jesus is hanging out with tax collectors and notorious sinners. And so Jesus tells a story about a lost coin, a lost sheep, and two lost sons. What's the point of what Jesus is saying here? At the point where somebody will not confess their sin and will not repent, you need to treat them as if they are not a believer. And so are we preaching, quote, unquote, condemnation? No, we're not preaching condemnation. But what we are saying is you are not right with God. We are not considering you as somebody who's walking with Christ. You are not walking in the light as Jesus is in the light. And we're calling you out of that. And we're going to continue to preach the gospel to you. But we're not considering you one of us. And I know if you're visiting today, you're like, see, this is why we hate Christians. You just need to understand something. 
It's because God intended for his church to be such a holy gathering, not perfect, forgiven. And there's a huge difference. That when the believers gathered together, they could actually weigh in on each other's lives. Not in a judgmental way, not in a slanderous way, not in a gossipy way, not in a condemning way, but in a way that says this offense is so great that it must be dealt with. We cannot overlook it, we cannot ignore it, and if you won't deal with it, then we need to consider you as somebody who is not connected to God's heart. And we're gonna try to love you back and do a right relationship with God by telling you You've got to repent of your sins and turn to Christ. Are you with me? This is no fun. But imagine a church that actually did that. Imagining if you're visiting with us today that there was actually a gathering of people out there who actually called things for what they were and then forgave them fully to the point where they don't bring it up anymore, they never mention it again. Their past is truly their past. And imagine a place where it was safe for victims of offenses to go because when they showed up there, they're not just going to be hurt further. No, they're going to call sin, sin. They're gonna call wrong, wrong. And they're gonna protect the innocent and the weak and those who do not have power or resources or access to help to getting done what needs to be done. I don't know about you, but I wanna be a, play, a part of a place like that. Ken Sandy again. He says this, Ron Craybill, a respected Christian mediator, has noted that effective confrontation is like a graceful dance from supportiveness to assertiveness and back again. This dance may feel awkward at first for those who are just learning it, but perseverance pays off. With God's help, you can learn to speak the truth in love by saying only what will build others up, by listening responsibly to what others say, and by using principles of wisdom. This little dance that he refers to, you're gonna see this often. If you come at somebody too strong, just like Paul warned in Ephesians 4, you're gonna find certain people rising up to fight back or you're gonna see certain people cowering to run away. And so there's gonna be moments where you might need to be assertive and speak clearly and truthfully, but then there's gonna be other moments where you need to back off and allow them to either rise up and calm back down. Remember, Proverbs tells us that a kind word turns away wrath. I see this often in relationships. So somebody's risen up, let them calm down. Honestly, sometimes I go for a walk while we talk, let them kind of burn off some energy and bring it back down. And it's like a dance where I'm, I'm not very good at dancing. I was gonna dance for you. It's like a dance where you're, you're kind of leading them through this process of their emotions and their feelings and their shame and their embarrassment and all the things that are coming out of it. But your goal is to lead them to the place of restoration. Your goal is to lead them to the place of reconciliation. Your goal is to have this again with them. So church, this is why Paul says, speak the truth in love. And the more that we do this, the more we become like Christ. I wanna pray over you. We're gonna go into communion time right now. Listen, communion servers, go ahead out because I wanna say this with everybody focused. I want you to spend communion time. If you're visiting with us today, I get it. You're like, what is this whole communion thing? You get to spend this time maybe listening to God or just looking around the room and studying other people praying, whatever, it'll be fine. But if you're in here right now, 
Number one, if you're a believer, I want you to spend this time connecting with your father and saying thank you for his mercy. Number two, if you're in here right now and there's a conflict in your life that you can't simply overlook, it's too great, it's too painful, it's too evil, whatever the situation is, you need to confront it, you need to go and talk to them. Then what I want you to do right now is to spend this time praying for your heart first, them second. So as you're praying for your own heart, you're saying, God, help me. Help me to see what's going on in here. Help me to understand it. Help me know what to do with it. God, help me to have the right heart, the right attitude to be reconciled to my friend, my spouse, my boss, my coworker, my child, whoever it is. Then you're gonna pray for them. God, would you go before me? God, would you prepare their heart for this conversation? God, would you blow me away at how you've laid out this path so when this conversation takes place, they actually receive it and acknowledge that they're wrong. And then if they don't, you're going to look for help, a mediator, somebody to come and give you wisdom and help intercede in the process. And this is not gonna be easy, but it's gonna start right now with a prayer. I'll start it, and then I'll walk off stage, and you keep talking to God. Father, we wanna be a church, God, where evil is dealt with, but it's dealt with in the most gracious and compassionate and forgiving and loving way possible. Because that's how you dealt with my evil. That's how you dealt with our evil. And Father, when you forgave us through the blood of Jesus on the cross, you showed us the way, you paved the way. God, for there to be healing and forgiveness and reconciliation on your earth, among your people. But God, the names and the situations that are going on in the hearts of people sitting out there right now, these are personal and these are hard. We easily overlook conflict and confrontation with people that we don't, aren't really all that invested in the names and the things you're bringing to mind. These are big deals to us. That's why we can't let it go. That's why the Spirit's convicting us. So God, would you meet us in this place? Would you speak to us? Would you challenge us? Would you encourage us? Would you do that thing that you do that we might hear clearly from you and know what to do about it? We ask all this in Jesus' name.